enormous men I know in person. I've, I've never encountered digital Josh. Um, so this is, uh, this is fun for me. Let me just say, it's a, it's a real privilege. Jo uh, Josh asked me to say a few words about the story of our church, so I want to do that before I get too, too far into uh, preaching God's Word. But I want to say that it is a tremendous privilege to wake up. I live on Fletcher Street, a quarter mile away from this building, and to think I can just walk down here and be with many of my brothers and sisters in Christ who I've not met yet, but who I've been praying with, who have been praying for me, and recognize that when you place faith in Jesus, you are united beyond an individual congregation. In a story that's not just a story, it's a true story of God making a world new and using his creatures in that process. We lose sight of that in the day-to-day -day busyness of life and the struggles of life. So I hope our time together is a greater encouragement to look at the bigger work of what God uh, is doing. I've followed you guys from afar. I've watched what you're doing. I've seen you in the parks. I've met many times with uh, Josh. I just want to encourage you um, that as you guard the deposit given to you, the gospel, God longs to do amazing things through you, but that will require more and more sacrifice. That's the model. We share in the glory, provided we also share in the suffering, the sacrifice, the relinquishing of our rights for someone who is better, someone who is greater, and never lets us down. I have seen that play out. My family moved to Rosendale two years ago after a three-year journey to Boston. My wife grew up in Connecticut. I was born in New York, but transplanted to Dallas, Texas as a kid. Uh, my roots have always been in the Northeast. Uh, my wife's roots have always been in the Northeast. And when we moved into Rosendale two years ago with no families and a vision that God put on our heart to pray that he would spring up a new congregation. One of the first people I met was Josh Wyatt. How easy. Think about it from a human perspective. Rosendale's big, but it's small. How easy it would be to be threatened by another man moving into the city saying, we want to plant. We're not big congregations. We could easily be one group and be bigger. When I met with Josh, Josh and I just began to pray, pray for a spirit of unity and partnership that would model something countercultural. We're not businesses. We're churches. And that's the foundational commitment of the Christian life. Life revolves around the church, and we should not be threatened if three, four more church plants come in. But I can tell you the pull of my heart on the, on the days where attendance is low uh, and sacrifice feels great, is to move towards competition. I have to repent of that. And I'm thankful that when I moved into this city, I found out that the other sister evangelical church in the area was Charles River, and a man like Josh was greeting me with open arms. So we're going to commit to continue to meet together. We moved in two years ago. We said, Lord, bring people, and we started a Bible study in our living room. Or the only way this is going to happen is if you bring more people because my neighbors find it so strange that this pastor guy has moved into their neighborhood and is starting a church. We eventually had some worship services in our living room. I know how peculiar that is, but we were waiting to rent space. Last September, we launched for public worship meeting in the evening at Bethany First United Methodist Church off of Cummins Highway. For one year, we've met there. September, we're moving to morning worship, and we could never have seen this coming. We're going to be meeting in a Jewish synagogue. 
in West Roxbury called Temple Hillel B'nai Torah. We don't make the decisions. And every step of this is peculiar. Um, I have really enjoyed getting to know the rabbi at Temple Hillel B'nai Torah. And I have no illusion that we share the same confession. But what might God want to do as we move over there and live in Roslindale? And Josh lives in West Roxbury and worships in Roslindale. I mean, we're, we're here in the Parkway area. Would God do much? If you have questions about us, I, we're, open, we're an open book. We long to partner with you guys. We're the little engine that could. We're a little bit behind you uh, in size. We're a little bit smaller. Uh, but we are, uh, we are delighted to think about how God may continue to root us in him so that we can partner with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and celebrate with you the stories of what God's doing uh, here. One of the things we're doing right now, we're, we're taking a month in the book of Philippians to just walk through some guiding commitments of our church. Last week, I looked at Philippians 1 and talked about this peculiar thing that that Paul, the Apostle Paul, and I'll give a little more detail as we go on, who wrote uh, the book of Philippians and so many other books in the New Testament, writes from prison to express his joy in the growth of the gospel to the people who are holding him captive and the strength that's growing in those who are watching him hold to the confession, even in his prison. And his joy is that the gospel is known and it's growing He's not terribly concerned about being in prison. In fact, he, he views it as a new mission field. That's really challenging. So we talked about last week at our church what it's like to be a church that's first and foremost for the gospel, which means good news of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Tonight I'm going to talk with our people about Christian community, the challenges of it, and the beauty of doing life together in a substantive way beyond Sunday morning. I've heard the word connection, connection, connection. So many times since I've, I've been here, that just warms me. Um, a church isn't healthy if you're only gathering on Sunday. You cannot mature in isolation. You cannot claim to be a mature Christian if you are not interdependent with other brothers and sisters in Christ in your congregation. Everything in the air we breathe pulls us to be too busy for that maturity. It's too hard. It's too awkward. I've been too disappointed. Well, tough. Jesus commands it. And if you're a solo Christian, you are not a mature Christian. You will dwindle. Your faith will just get weaker and weaker. And God will bring you to a place of repentance and faith because he loves you too much to let that bold hard-headedness take deeper and deeper root. I speak from experience. <laughs> I speak for, as one who joins in that and joins in that. Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to a, a church that he started, he planted in Philippi in roughly 50 AD. Philippi with a, is a city that's in the northern portion of modern Greece. It was a colony of Rome. So Rome, when Rome took over areas, there were colonies and there were provinces. Colonies were viewed as actual expanded territory. It was Roman soil under strict Roman values. It would be a privilege to not just be taken over by Rome, but to be declared a colony with less taxes and greater liberty and more embrace of the emperor worship and values of the Roman, emperor, uh, of the Roman Empire. Rome valued pride. Pride was a good word. What was good 
was what was stereotypically, and I say this sensitively, stereotypically masculine. Physical strength, superiority, dominance, how high you were in the social order. Your value was based in your actual physique as well as your social standing, and you strove to get more and more honor knowing that there was one above you, the emperor, who was the ultimate picture of true humanity. And here comes the Apostle Paul saying, let me tell you of the ethics of the kingdom of God. Strength is humility. Strength is putting self last. Strength is considering others more significant than self. Utterly confusing, a disgrace to the Roman ethic, and yet this church sprung up that Paul loved so much. Of the churches that Paul worked with, the church in Philippi was relatively healthy. Paul writes this letter. They're they're concerned about him in prison, and he writes back to encourage them, don't worry about me. My joy is that you're growing in your faith and that others know and are learning of the gospel. There were seeds of division in the church of Philippi. If you read the book of Philippians, it doesn't take long, start to finish. You might just look at it and go, this is a completely healthy church until you get to chapter 4 where you hear of a conflict between a woman named Euodia and a woman named Syndicate. Well, that's, that's just one concrete example of seeds of division that are creeping all around that church. Paul knows that there are pressures culturally on the Philippians. He knows there are pressures within their heart to put self first. And he tells them, I want you to thrive in clinging to the gospel and living in harmony and living in unity and living uh, with great humility. Pray every day for the unity and peace of your church. And, And make no mistake that within you are seeds of gossip and division and judgment that work against God's purposes. A mature Christian wakes up and says, oh, I'm prone to divide. Not look at me. I've got it together. So that's the context. Philippi, the city that longs to be a citizen of Rome and espouse its value, Paul speaking of having a primary citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and letting those values drive you as you trust in the Lord. So let's hear his words from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And we'll talk a little bit more of this theme of division. These are the very words of God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. 
Father, would you still us with this tremendous model of humility? We know that this is more than a model, that in the work of Christ is our very strength to follow. Would you fix our eyes on the humility of our Lord? Would you challenge us to see those places where we are prone to divide and prone to lift up self? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A war once broke out in a small country and the battle lines were drawn, the trenches were dug, and on the eve of conflict, a spat broke out in one of the trenches. There were two soldiers who were preparing their supplies for the battle that was about to rage, and one of the soldiers carelessly stepped on the boot of another soldier, and the offended soldier lashed out, saying things like, how dare you? Do you know how much time I took to polish these boots? Do you know how valuable these boots are? You're so impulsive. You're so careless. You're not really even a good soldier. Others joined in, and others joined in. Disunity sprang up, and before long, the battle within one trench was playing out with the enemy approaching. Utterly distracted, utterly vulnerable, the infighting grew and grew. Perhaps that played out in history. That certainly plays out in our churches. And I don't mean to convey this sort of triumphal Christianity, like, let's go take Roslindale, let's take West Roxbury. But isn't it a picture of the human heart to be concerned about a boot in the middle of a war? Isn't it a picture of humanity to take what's ultimately insignificant and all about you and your comfort and make it more important than your good and the good of others around you? Paul knew that the Philippians were in a battle. He knew that the culture around them ran against their central values as Christians. He says before our passage in verse 127, what some have called the central encouragement of the whole book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That could be translated, live as citizens, not of Rome. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking the citizen language. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The picture is an athletic contest, a Roman gladiator contest. And how foolish it would be if you have three compatriots not to lock arms with them and be a unified, stronger front. But we are prone to go it alone because we're prone to think we know better. That linking arms is ultimately weakness and vulnerability rather than strength. He speaks the language of an athletic contest. He speaks the language of a military contest. And what he's essentially saying is, you may look healthy, but there are seeds and roots of division in your church. Okay, so when Josh listens to this sermon, the last thing I want him to think is I'm trying to make you paranoid. But a healthy Christian looks first at their own hearts and sees seeds and roots of division. So I want to hear in this exhortation in Philippians 2 what Paul has to say about seeds and roots of division before we turn our attention and marvel at the model and the power of Jesus. So if you're an outline person, I'm sorry. Um, Seeds and roots of division, 
We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the model and power of Christ. As a former teacher, there are outline people and not outline people. Would the non-outline people not be proud? Right? And would the outline people not think the non-outline people are careless? <laughs> Could we not love each other <laughs> just in the way we actually learn as, as well? Seeds and roots of division, the model and power of Christ. Paul starts by saying in verses 1 to 2, so have your Bibles open. We're going to be really looking at this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, in other words, if you have experienced the good news of the rescuing work of God in the person of Jesus Christ, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if you've been saved, if you've been rescued, if you place faith, if you believe that God has come to do for you what you can never do for yourself, any comfort from his love, you've experienced his love, your eyes have been thrown open through the participation in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has dwelled in you so that you can even see what a mess you are, let alone how great he is. Any affection and sympathy, any affection and compassion, if you've experienced God's love, you are a new creation made for harmony and unity. But you're, you're in this flesh which pulls stubborn. It pulls for uh, selfish ambition and your own uh, rights. If you've experienced the good news, which he knows the Philippians have, if you read the first chapter, he, he's sure that they've clung to Jesus. He's sure that they'll mature, and he's sure that they need to be on guard against themselves and the false teaching around them. Be on guard against the seeds of division. The Roman culture, how different is the Roman culture from the dominant Boston culture? That's a good question. Dogged individualism, consumerism. I'm not anti-culture, and I encourage you Christians not to retreat from culture, but to live in and appreciate God's common grace and the way he teaches you from Christian and non-Christian. But be wise about the air you're breathing, which essentially says take care of self, and if you have anything left over, do a little service here and there, right? You're too busy, particularly if you live in Boston, the busyness of Boston. You're too, you're too busy to pour yourself out. Take care of yourself, then take care of your family, take care of your children, your extended family. If you have anything left over, think about your neighbor. Well, the gospel, the gospel throws that all out of whack. The seeds of division are the culture. The seeds of division in the Philippian church, false teaching was creeping in, distorting the gospel, essentially saying, you need Jesus plus you. God came to rescue you so that you could have a wonderful life of personal advancement and acclaim. Hear the prosperity gospel now. If anybody says, I want to become a Christian so I can be a bigger, better me, I just hear an offense before God. And I will go after that, tooth and nail. If you want to be a Christian, get ready for a harder life, a better life, but a harder life. And learn from those who have less than you, because they might very well know more than you. The seeds of division, the Roman culture, the false teaching, Euodia and Syndicate starting to argue. He just says, I love you. Remember what you believe. Remember what God has done. And live as a new creation. It's your freedom. Your freedom is getting beyond you. Your freedom is getting beyond you. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. He's in prison writing this letter. And he's saying, my joy 
is that you would grow in understanding of the gospel and harmony, living in lockstep, living with a shared purpose. This one accord means united in spirit, one mind. Do you live, when you look at other Christians, as if you have a shared purpose, a shared mission, shared resources, that the needs of the group trump your personal ambitions, uh, your personal desires? There were seeds of division in the church, and he goes on in verse 2 to diagnose it as ultimately rooted in pride. Many before me have said that pride is the central sin of the human heart. And what is pride? Valuing self, thinking on some level, whether you'll admit it or not. C.S. Lewis, Lewis once said that pride is the most hidden of sins. There's no fault more unconscious, more unconscious to us than the sin of pride. No one thinks they're prideful. I mean, you need the work of God to show you how you put self first, how you consider self more significant. Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, do nothing from rivalry, which is selfish ambition. That would be me planning a church, and this happened in chapter 1 of Philippians, planning a church and looking to poach Christians from Charles River or vice versa. How disgusting that would be. How offensive that would be. Paul was in prison, and there were fellow Fellow leaders preaching the actual gospel who were looking to belittle him in prison, probably to get some of his followers or some of his acclaim. And Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't care. It, Jesus is being proclaimed. When Paul's attacked, he's passive. When Jesus is attacked, he goes on the offensive. There might be a church that comes in and longs to grab from Charles River or Christ the King Presbyterian Church. Would all of us be saying, our central concern is Jesus is proclaimed. The gospel is clearly proclaimed. Our central concern is the, the one mind shared purpose of the gospel. Will we live worthy of it? The central diagnosis here in the Philippians is that, that pride, that inflated view of self, that vanity, thinking self better than others, the hoarding of honor, which was valued in the Roman Empire, was taking root in Philippi. Waking up thinking, how can I get more ease, more acclaim, more comfort? How can I be honored? That's what Paul's speaking against when he talks about, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Do you look, Christian, I'm going to speak to non-Christians as well, and, and I hope there are many non-Christians in our churches who ask tough, tough questions. You know, I came to faith as a 28-year-old professor in Florida. I had tough questions, and a lot of Christians didn't want to hear them or answer them. Would you be comfortable with that? If people say, what's different about your Christian community? Would you say, well, here's what we believe, and here's what we seek to live out through the strength of the God we profess. Do you see it? Do you wonder why we do it? Do you wonder who gets the glory? Selfish ambition, vanity, inflated view of self, pride plays out in hoarding honor. Look to the left and right. No joke. Look to the left. Look to the right. I encourage you during a service to periodically look around 
at the Christians that God has brought into a room, one of the things that spoke most to me as a new Christian was how diverse the people were in the room. The first worship service as a new Christian. And I thought, these pe- why are these people worshiping together? What in the world could bind these people together? And that went well beyond color of skin to class to back. I mean, it was just looking, going, man, these people are all singing, which is a little strange. Some of them are too concerned about whether hands are being raised. I see that. Some are too concerned about not. I mean, the, the, the seeds of division are there. I don't like the way you worship. I wish this church would do things a little bit differently. But it struck me how people were focused on the preaching of a book and how diverse they were and how much they strived to get to know one another. It is a tremendous defense of the gospel to do this. It stands out particularly in a hyper-busy Boston culture. But it comes at a cost. When you look to the right and when you look to the left, do you see a social club or do you see a family? When you look to the left and when you look to the right, do you see an opportunity to relinquish your rights and pour yourself out for the good of the person around you? Yes and no. (laughs) There's limits, right? (laughs) We can't go too far with this. Do you view them as part of you? Or as someone you might get to know if you have a little extra time. Paul wants the Philippians to live with this radical interdependency. And I would just ask you to think, what prevents that? The world? The culture? Your heart? There is an enemy of the faith. Presbyterians are nervous to talk about this, so I'm going to be... There is a devil... There is a spiritual force who is far worse than any Hollywood characterization who loves to speak and whisper, who loves to be subtle. Jesus, there's more. If only people knew how good you were. This marriage is too hard. You deserve more. You deserve more. You deserve more. And you wake up looking for more, only to get less and less Unless, what prevents that radical interdependency? The seeds of the culture, the pride of the heart. Folks, I woke up this morning, and before I kind of got my bearings, I realized I was more concerned about what you thought of me and what Josh thought of me as I preached than I was the opportunity to just come here and let God work. I'm one of you. Josh is one of you. We're a mess. And we're stuck in self regularly. Oh, that God would move us out of the way and show us the joy of forgetting about ourselves so that he could actually work. I love when people come up after a sermon and say, hey, what really hit me the most about your sermon, and it was nothing I intended. (laughs) Nine times out of ten, Josh will tell you the same thing. Like, oh, you really got me when you just paused in the sermon. Like, but I didn't mean to. Like, the pause got you? Um, What about the words? What about the words? My favorite definition of humility is this. Not thinking less of yourself. I'm not worthy. I'm just just not that great a teacher. You know, I'm not that great a friend. Humility is not uh, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's something to put on a plaque. Not thinking less of yourself... And that's what I always thought humility was. People, people told me growing up, you're so humble, you're so humble, you're so humble. I'm like, I'm consumed with how flawed I am. 
I'm narcissistically focused on my weakness, and you think that's strength? True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Me looking around thinking, Lord, how much you want me to pour out myself to serve this, these people today without thinking of time or resources or anything? That's the greatest joy in my Christian life, when I spontaneously, without overthinking, am helping people because of my understanding of what God has done for me, and I'm not thinking about how that looks to others. We wake up stuck in ourselves, don't we? We wake up and the thoughts race in. How do I get a pocket of rest? How do I get to the couch? How do I get a vacation? We don't typically wake up thinking, Lord, how do you want to use me today for others? We don't wake up today grieving for the situation of persecuted Christians in Iraq, which is a very complicated situation. And any time I mention that, I always say, will we grieve first for the way that Christians have persecuted others throughout time? Will we just acknowledge that? Will we acknowledge what Christians have done in the name of Jesus to other people of different backgrounds? Like, how do we share in the burdens of families that are facing death right now in Iraq with this, fil- with this message that's unclear and coming through all these different news channels without just going to Starbucks and forgetting about it and indulging ourselves and losing ourselves in self? Do we wake up thinking it would be a joy to, to be burdened for others? There are seeds and roots of division. Paul ultimately says, let me, let me point you to the beautiful humility of Jesus, which is not just your example. It is your strength. He breaks out into this beautiful hymn in verses 6 to 11. And he marvels on the work of Jesus and the work of, Father, work of uh, the Father. We believe as Christians that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't have seven days to explain the Trinity to you. But essentially what Paul marvels at is how God the Father sent God the Son to humble himself to death before the Father exalts him to the highest position of things seen and unseen. And Paul says, look at this example. You think true humanity is Caesar? True humanity is Jesus came to start a new humanity perfectly related to God. He is the first to come and live a perfect life, and in his death and resurrection, all who trust in him will follow in an eternal, perfect, true humanity. The supreme model of humility, the supreme power to follow. Look at verses 6 to 8. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is the gospel? We're seeing it described. The God who made the world. The scriptures tell us that God the Father, through God the Son, made all that is seen and unseen. You can see that in John chapter 1. And you can look at Genesis 1 and put these together and go, wait, Jesus? There was a time when the one who was called Jesus wasn't called Jesus. He eternally existed, God the Son, and condescended at the command of the Father to take flesh and veil his glory with flesh and be named Jesus, which means God saves or God rescues. 
The one who was called Jesus and is called Jesus existed before he was called Jesus as the son of God. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. Though he had unveiled glory in a heavenly realm, all the rights and privileges of being the creator, he said, I will step into this messed up world that thinks they know how to do life without me, that deserves only my judgment and wrath. I will step in and take flesh to rescue them. I will take the form of a servant, meaning I will relinquish my rights and privileges in a heavenly realm to come for these messed up folks who are stuck in self, who are stuck in their selfish ambition. I will come to do what they cannot do. It's like the king who hears of a rebellion in the village who knows if he shows up in his crown and his cape, people are going to flee, who longs for the people to come to their senses, who takes off his crown and takes off his robe and leaves the bodyguards behind and says, I want to go as a fellow villager to tell them they are going the wrong way, knowing that I may be killed in the process for speaking such nonsense. It's that and so much more. Showing up in human form, essentially saying, I am a new humanity. I am making a nation that will fill the earth. Those who follow me, who know that I came because they are stuck in self and stuck in pushing their agendas and have offended God, those who follow me will follow in my true humanity, both in the way that I suffer and the way I conquer sin and death. It is a beautiful story, is it not? It's a true story. He was preexistent. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of a cross. A Roman citizen couldn't be put on a cross. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible way to die. You will die slowly, stripped of clothing, mocked by people, as in pain your life is extinguished, humiliated. This humbling is, is God saying, I will allow myself to be publicly disgraced and ridiculed, treated as of the lowest status, while sustaining the world on its axis. Why? Because I consider others more significant than self. I consider others more valuable than self. The di greatest display of love is the cross. God's love relinquishing rights and privileges to, a, to, a, to take a cross for enemies so that they might become friends through his rescuing work. Roman citizens were beheaded. They would never be mocked and ridiculed in this way. Jesus was of one mind with the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he tells his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. Not that you might experience the same physical death, but certainly, Sacrifice, which is your freedom. A sacrifice of self. Look at what the Father does in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, that's a big therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son is not hoarding honor. He's relinquishing it for the good of others. The Father's not hoarding honor. He's freely bestowing it on Jesus, showing that his sacrifice was accepted. The discipline that those who follow Jesus deserve was fully paid on him on the cross. And the receipt is his victory over death. He conquered the grave. Where? To go sit on a throne as the Lord of all that is seen and unseen, whether you believe in him, or whether you don't, 
The father longs not to hoard honor, but to see it poured upon his son. The son loves for honor to be poured upon the father. This is the same God who made us originally to pour honor upon each other, not to hoard it, ultimately to honor the God who made us so that people would know him and grow in him. This is a picture, long prophecy, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. You can read Isaiah 45 in your free time. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 45, 23 that's fulfilled here of a great rescuing work and establishment of a nation that would fill the earth full of every nation, tongue, and tribe who bend the knee and confess their need in the rescuing work of God through a servant, Jesus Christ. Every background, every language filling the earth. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess. The, the difficult portion of this passage is whether, whether to new life or dogmatic, I still don't believe in you, one day every creature will acknowledge that Jesus wasn't just some guy in the first century. He was a God who took flesh. This was hard for me at 28, with a PhD as a professor of psychology at Florida State, to realize that the greatest problem in my life was not you, but it was me, thinking that a creature knew true wisdom or was actually in control of things here and afterward. I know how bizarre that sounds to a non-Christian. I know how scary that sounds to a non-Christian, but you know what I did as a non-Christian? I didn't actually study it. I didn't actually read the scriptures. I didn't actually ask questions that I may not want to hear the answer of. I boxed out and only read the freakiest Christians, the ones who weren't clear about their faith. I supported my stereotype, basically saying, I am Caesar. I know what's best. Until God brought this man into my life, who's probably the smartest man I've ever met, who looked me in the eyes and said, I can't believe a smart, like, smart guy like you believes the stuff that you're telling me. How can you be so smart and not understand your own worldview, let alone the Christian scriptures? At least study. And he began to, and God used that conversation in a big way. Here's, here's how I want to close and think about things. What would it look like for Charles River Church to be a leader in being one of one mind and considering others more significant than self? What would it look like for your church to say, we want to major on sacrificial Christian community so that the name of Jesus would be known, not just in our words, but in our actions? This is a city that looks beyond your word to your actions, and I love it. I love Boston. I love it on so many different I love when someone says, you say that, but you do this. And I get to say, you know what, you're right. There are places I live that wouldn't call me out on that. Thank you. That's called sin. You're absolutely right. I love that about this city. I love that they're watching how word and deed come together. How could you live together beyond the Sunday service in a way that would tell people about the new humanity that God has established in Jesus, a humanity that is interdependent for his glory and growing as he makes all things new. How do you get to listen better to the left and to the right, serve better to the left and to the right? How do you get to awkwardly, and and let's be honest, for some of us it's just awkward to pray. That's okay. Some of the quote-unquote best prayers I've heard are from new Christians who don't have the faintest idea what they're saying in some way, but speak to me in a profound way because they're not performing. They're actually experiencing something. God is not impressed with the amount of words. 
He's not impressed by what we think we're doing to help others. He's impressed by his son and what he does in transforming people who say, God, God, I am an utter mess. The problem with this world and the reason for conflicts in Iraq and all is me. It's my selfish ambition and pride. It's your creature saying, we are you, not we will serve you. We deserve to be eternally separated. But you came with perfect humility and humbled yourself to the point on a cross so that we can place faith and trust in your rescue and work and live for you and repent every day of our tendency to turn it back on ourselves. Your real freedom as a Christian is repentance. Every day preaching the gospel to yourself. Are you quick? To relinquish your rights? Just some stinger questions to end with. Are you quick to lavish honor on fellow Christians? I think of our two churches. Here's my hope for our two churches. That whatever we define success as, let's pretend it's the same thing that God sees, and it's success, the gospel being known and and vibrant Christianity growing. Would the success of Charles River be success to us? Would the success of Christ the King Presbyterian Church be your success? Could you imagine rejoicing to hear of, of, of a work that's growing in one of our churches and it being viewed as your work? This operates within and across congregations. And could we be creative in how we partner with each other while supporting the growth of these individual congregations? We're going to need the Lord to do that. Amen? And he longs to do it. we got to get out of the way. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That is also true humanity, true joy, true freedom. And one day, I mean, have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in a world where everyone selflessly seeks the good of others? That's why he came. It has begun, and it will be constant. One day, Christian, you will be unable to get in the way, and you will experience joy unending and selflessly serving brothers and sisters in Christ and the worship of the living God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be the pastor of a congregation in Roslindale, preaching at another congregation in Roslindale, and dreaming of the growing work of God in our midst. Praying for a deeper understanding of the work of Jesus that we would get out of the way, considering others more significant, living with one mind in and across our congregations, longing for others to know and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might live lives worthy of that gospel through the model, but the strength of Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. You bring us to repentance and you remind us that Jesus is our rescue, but he is also our growth. We do not mature in our own strength. We mature in him. Would you do a work to your glory, in Christ's name.